1: The term La Petite Guerre appeared as a way to officially bring the contact or conduct of light troops under the umbrella of civilized warfare. By the time of the Revolution, La Petite Guerre was understood to be a feature of regular warfare.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Brian K. Gehring, discussing La Petite Guerre and the Indian War in the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan, by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches, our first for the year 2021. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss his new article on Le Petit Guerre and the realities of Indian War and the American Revolution is former Army Special Forces and Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Brian K. Gehring. Today's topic, I think, is a very important one for understanding the totality of the American Revolution, the combat side of it, that is to say. Because those of us who have spent our time studying the battle on the American frontier and the American West understand that the American Revolution could be a very brutal and terrible civil war at times. Not just set-piece battles between uh, armies in in opposite-color uniforms in places like Long Island and Philadelphia. Brian Gehring brings an experienced voice to this topic Uh, He had a 30-year career in the United States military, and it shows in this article. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Brian Gehring. Brian Gehring, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. All
1: right. I was uh, born, raised, and grew up basically south of Detroit, Michigan. Um, I became interested in the American Revolution uh, when my family started to reenact during the bicentennial years. Um, so I like to say I spent most of my weekend from 1976 to about 1982, living a colonial lifestyle, uh, from those experiences. Um, I learned that history was actually pretty exciting and not just some of the boring stuff you get in school, you know, mandated by a school curriculum. So I really enjoyed history from that experience. Um, I also learned from the past or that the past can be easily misrepresented by teachers, sometimes even historians, um, usually through a lack of understanding. Um, In essence, they repeat the same old stereotypes, which I think we've all heard about, you know, the Americans won the revolution because they fought behind trees and the British stood out in the open. Um, During that time, I was... I was too young to participate in the soldiers. So really all I did was I I just watched and kind of took it all in. And I think the highlight of my weekends were always the the battle reenactments because I I did enjoy that and just kind of watching it, learning that way of 18th century warfare and kind of how that shaped future generations of warfare. This kind of always in my mind clicked and it always made sense. Um, After that, uh, basically after high school, straight out of high school, I joined the uh, U.S. Army, and I was an infantry paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne, and I had a great time there, and I learned a lot, especially through the infantry environment, but it was in that environment, I kind of learned, I was basically just a number in a, you know, division of infantry soldiers. It really wasn't a lot of, uh, what do you think, responsibility, or a lot of forethought from from my side of like what's the big picture what's going on here you just didn't get a lot of that so you know looking at the army and looking at other things I was like well there is units out there that can provide that kind of outreach for me or, or a different avenue for me and that was the army uh special forces so I tried out for that I was selected and I graduated with them so I served in uh, U.S. Army Special Forces, both on active duty and on the National Guard side. So during um, my National Guard side, I took um, took some college classes on an officer at that time. I was always focused on history. That was always just seemed to what I was always drawn to. And uh, it was interesting because while studying history, I realized that the job of a historian was, was pretty much identical to uh, intelligence analyst which was one of the jobs I was trained in special forces and at work because they both kind of gather facts and they they show where information is missing and you need to get that information to kind of paint a clear picture um, and and I kind of like that it, it for me it equated in my brain like oh these jobs are very similar and it kind of even pushed me even further into the historic historian field so, unfortunately, you know, 9-11 came along and college took a complete backseat. And um, during that time, I served in multiple combat deployments with special forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, recently, I just retired last year, just about a year ago, after about 30 years of service. Um, during my final years in service, I completed a bachelor's of science degree with Norwich University. And then just this past summer, I completed my master's degree in military history from Norwich University. So right now I'm just, um, you know, besides working historian or working history fields, I'm getting back into reenacting too. And so I'm kind of portraying a light infantry soldier of the 1778, 1779 uh, light infantry uh, company with the 1st Pennsylvania Regiment.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, I became interested. This topic developed out of my master's paper, which was I was examining why Washington wanted permanent light infantry forces in the Continental Army. So part of that research involved me examining the types of warfare that led to the creation of light infantry troops. Um, Both forms of warfare meaning regular and kind of an irregular warfare types had an impact uh, on the light forces of that era. And I saw that through reading the primary sources and, and figuring out what was the big push for light infantry. Um, and it was during that process where reading Washington's writings and orders to the army, and then spilling out into other primary sources, European and, and those types of writings, That I became aware of operations in uh, La Petite Guerre. And I kind of realized that that did not necessarily equate in every single instance to irregular operations. And that's not really what I was seeing in some of the history, the contemporary history I was reading from historians. So I was, I was interested in that topic and I looked at it deeper and was like, well, it seems there is two different ways, and they are kind of separate, but they're very similar. Um, what I was getting from the primary sources was that there was really only two types of war. As I mentioned, there was a regular way of war and the opposite, which is an irregular way of war. And modern scholars always translate that into just a broad term of regular warfare and irregular warfare. Um, From my military background, obviously being taught and experienced irregular warfare and, you know, actually in combat, I had some kind of frame reference of, okay, you know, here's what this actually means and here's what it doesn't mean. So it seemed reading some of this scholarly work on, on the subject of 18th century warfare, it just seemed there was a lot of blurring of the current like 21st, 20, 20, 20th and 21st century military terms with military terms from the 18th century. And you can, a lot of that you can read now is, you know, contemporary terms will pop up like guerrilla warfare, hybrid warfare, asymmetric warfare, unconventional warfare. You know, there's just a lot of these terms that creep into lexicon of terms that describe the American Revolution, but none of these terms, including irregular warfare, are present in the primary sources. So that that's where I was kind of looking at, like what's going on here, What's why are they painting, or, or putting a term that really was never in use in that era. So I wanted to see, well, what's the mindset of an 18th century soldier, like what, what did they use and what did they mean by the terms they used? Um, So that's kind of where it developed from. I mean, I took a quote from my master's paper because it really summed up why I delved into this article specifically. I wrote, in the case of regular and irregular warfare, it comes down to semantics. The idea that the modern historian conveys with those terms are nearly the same as 18th century understanding. However, therein lies the problem. Nearly the same and similar does not represent the same. A modern understanding of warfare may present different meanings or context from 18th century understanding. The better way to understand the context for 18th century warfare is to use the language from the primary sources and interpret what those contemporaries meant by that language so there is no confusion or misrepresentation. So after I just briefly touched on that with my paper, and I just thought this is probably something I want to write about further, and I, I kind of delved into it, and I thought the Journal of the American Revolution, I thought, was a perfect place to see if they would be interested in such topic.
0: What was the traditional view of war for Europeans?
1: Yeah, the traditional, I mean, the traditional view, in the, of course, you have to paint some... Uh, broad terms for this, but traditionally you're looking at, I think everybody is familiar with the linear warfare. That's kind of the traditional view of war. It gets a little more in depth than that, but you're talking about primarily infantry-based armies, and you're you're doing battle in the open terrain, and you have well-ordered sieges. If you look at the, the sources there, they lay out specifically how sieges progress and surrender terms and all that type of thing. Um, that's where you get the maneuver, orderly maneuvers, you know, firing and mass volleys, bayonet attacks, that, that type of very traditional linear warfare. Um, a part of that also is their traditional view of war was based on rules. So it's kind of like a very gentlemanly behavior uh, you can think of the white flags, which definitely pop up in the sources of, hey, we're you know white flags out, we're going to talk, we're going to parley or surrender, um, that type of thing. They stressed humanity, even in the heat of battle, and honor. Those were characteristics of uh, European warfare, and there was a very delineated understanding of combatants and non-combatants in European warfare combatants obviously being soldiers. Um, As I point out in my article, the Europeans saw their form of warfare involving what they called active courage, which meant their soldiers would conduct warfare visibly in open areas. And there are examples from the early part of the revolution where the British would chide the americans for fighting opposite of that which they called you know you're fighting like indians or the savages but those were
0: just in the, some of the early parts of the war how did indian warfare differ from this
1: yeah simply put i think the americans following the european mindset they considered indian warfare to be uncivilized um And I think that perception can be traced back to how the Europeans viewed their civilization, which, of course, warfare is always a part of a civilization. So the Americans, like other Europeans, they regarded the Indian civilization as incompatible with their European-based concept of civilization. And thus, the Indians' uncivilized manners equated to an uncivilized aspect in warfare in, in their you know, in the European and American minds. So the Indian warfare, it did not involve the open fields and the orderly, well-structured lines of soldiers. Their tactics were very fluid. They retreated and attacked with quick movements. Their retreats could easily turn into enveloping attacks if the enemy chased after them. And that's something um, Henry Bouquet, he even noted that. Late during the French and Indian War, the Indians also used the North American drain to their advantage. So they would use surprise attacks, ambush, hit-and-run attacks, um, and movements through the through these forests, and skirmishes that were consisted of extended or what kind of what we call now loose order of soldiers. So the Indians did that that type of uh, tactics too. The Americans characterized Indian warfare is uncivilized, primarily because of how the Indian tribes conducted seemingly inhumane warfare. Because there was no distinction between combatants and non-combatants, the Indians would target anyone, from babies up to you know the aged, the old people. Um, Didn't really matter. Thomas Jefferson, he's got a good quote, and it. It really tellingly provides how Americans understood American warfare at the time. The quote is, the known rule of warfare with the Indian savages is the indiscriminate butchery of men, women, and children. These savages fight not against our forts or armies in the field, but the farming settlements on our frontiers. By modern terms, that quote pretty much sums up unlimited warfare. That's what we call it today. Um, but by contemporary 18th century terms, that was savage warfare.
0: How did Europeans react to Indian war?
1: Well, I think the um, how they reacted to Indian warfare, you know, looking back again at the record, it's pretty much they were horrified by what they saw at first and quickly fell right into that same pattern of, okay, uh, tit for tat and basically you're going to do it to us. We're gonna do it to you. And it just became that sort of horrific where nothing was really off limits. No no non combatants, nothing. Families, homes, crops, everything is part of a war. So as in anywhere, like I say, once once a violence begins, once that is unleashed, it, it becomes a difficult thing to stop. And like I say, you can really look back and see it's a a tit for tat. It's a one for another. We're gonna do it to you, that we're gonna do it back to you. You're gonna do it to us. So, the Americans, you know, as much as sometimes we don't like to think about it or, or stress it too much, they did the same savage warfare techniques against Indians, where they scalped, they mutilated, they killed non-combatants. They did, you know, we we did all that to Indians. Um, the Europeans same thing they often hoped that to get the indian um forces out to meet them in an open field they thought well we can attack these non-combatants and that will force them into open areas so we can fight them the way we're normally fighting doesn't really you know help the situation or, or justify it at all but that was some of their thinking um Another way they reacted to it was they employed uh, what, you know, ranger units from the French and Indian war was really where that came about, but there was ranger units well before that, but that's where they really started to use um, colonial soldiers in ranger type outfits that could basically operate exactly as Indians. And that was one way they, they came to terms with that. But, the rangers could be just as brutal as the Indians. Um, French Canadians referred to them sometimes as English savages during the French and Indian War. Um, We can see Sullivan's expedition from the Revolutionary War. It's a a perfect example of how the Americans treated the Indians in combat. uh, In his order to uh, Major General John Sullivan, Washington directed that, uh, the quote is, the immediate objects are the total destruction and devastation of their settlements And the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible, it is essential to ruin their crops now in the ground and prevent their planting more. So by using these Indian irregular methods of war against Indians, Europeans and Americans operated contrary to their own established rule of war.
0: What is meant by the term petite guerre yeah,
1: that term, the the little the literal translation is small war. However, that's that's more of a late night. That doesn't even appear to late 19th century. Um, contemporary 18th century, especially in America, they always referred to it as the petite guerre. They they never translated it. It was just understood. This is what it is. This is what it means. Um, simply put, petite guerre is a war. On the fringes of the main army, it means any military operation that directly impacts the main army, but it doesn't involve main forces from the attacker or the defender of the or the defender yeah. The origin of the phrase dates to after the war of the Austrian Succession. Um, during that war, the concept of petite guerre, it was employed. However, it was very, it it often involved brutal methods, much like Indians, the irregular methods of war. Um, So it was after the War of Austrian Succession, before the Seven Years' War, that Petit Guerre became codified, mainly by French writers. That's why the term is French. Um, Part of the naming and the codifying action of the Petit Guerre. Was because these military, these European military writers, they wanted this type of warfare to be conducted by professional and disciplined troops, so they could curtail the atrocity and abuses that had occurred during the War of the Austrian Succession, and that was their way to bring this type of warfare under the umbrella of, you know, quote, civilized warfare. Um, the term La Petite Guerre. It appeared as a way to officially bring the contact or conduct of light troops under the umbrella of civilized warfare. By the time of the Revolution, the petite guerre was understood to be a feature of regular warfare. Oftentimes, it was referred to as a war detachment um, due to the detached nature of the troops conducting the petite guerre. Officers selected to uh, head these detachments were sometimes called partisans. And therefore, we get also partisan warfare is another term that historians historians frequently equate with the petite guerre. Um, We can see in Roger Stevenson's uh, 1775 manual, the military instruction for officers detached in the field. We can see how Americans understood the conduct of the petite guerre. He described it as operations supporting the main war effort that troops conducted on the fringe of operations by either regular or irregular forces. In this context, irregular forces are not the full-time uh, professional soldiers, but we can equate them to militia. In the grand scheme, petite guerre, it's almost like movements of pawns in chess. It, it's, it helps the war, but it's really not going to decide the outcome. Um, it was good for keeping the enemy guessing where an attack can occur, so it's always keeping them off balance. And it was a it was a good way to keep them spread out because the enemy had to protect vital interests and so they could not in theory have a massed army somewhere for a final battle. They had to protect all these rear areas where the petite guerre could go in and disrupt them.
0: How did petite guerre differ from other Indian war tactics?
1: As I mentioned, the well, I didn't part of Europeans and, and Americans, they always used friendly Indian allies in their armies. So they employed them as scouts, trackers, as well as fighters. You can see that all throughout the era. So basically, the Indians were the subject matter experts, and the Europeans were going to them to say, hey, you know, join us, we'll give you XYZ, help us fight your enemies, our enemies. So what better way to combat and defeat an enemy than to get someone who knows exactly how the enemy works? Um, for the British, they kind of understood that Indians had a better grasp on how to use the North American terrain during combat. The British and, and the Americans, they, they could turn a blind eye to the atrocities. In some case, they even encouraged them but that was their way of getting that little extra something they needed to get out in the um, in the forest in the thickets of North America so the Europeans used these to, uh, the Indians to conduct independent operations which would basically keep the frontiers of the American colonies in a constant state of war so it was almost thinking it's almost like a petite guerre in reverse to where it was the Americans have to watch out for their rear because the Indians are always back in the rear attacking again, settlements non-combatants such as
0: that. How did Indian war and petite guerre merge over time?
1: As we can see uh, throughout the past through, you know, all of history, things often change in warfare. So, typically when you look at things it's like a new equipment something like that appears and that necessitates a new tactic to defeat it in the case of the of indian irregular warfare in the petite year it was more of an attitude shift not so much a new equipment or something like that so the attitude was basically you can see it starting in the american revolution but the predominant thinking from historians really point to um, revolutionary France, which, you know, decade or so after the American Revolution, give or take. And that's where, you know, there's a social breakdown of a ruling military class who were the controlling officers of troops to keep troops in line to do that type thing. When that broke down, you're really starting to see where warfare, civilized, uncivilized begins to come together where it's like, now we fight by any means to win. And it really doesn't matter. So in Europe, you can, you can start to see that through the Napoleonic eras up through the whole 19th century. And, you know, that brings in the whole rise of guerrilla fighters and and guerrilla warfare, which is where that emerged in America. You don't see it too much during the war of 1812 it really comes alive in the westward expansion and the American Civil War, where now you do get into irregular guerrillas and, and that type of warfare. Merging together, the the late 19th century in America, especially out west with the Indians, that's where you can see it's still referred to as petit guerre, but now the military thinking is changing and, and they they begin to start calling it other names that predominantly they call it minor operations. But by reading those sources, you can see it's almost exact verbatim what the peak gear was in the 18th century. Only now it's becoming more acceptable and it's not massed armies in the field. It's just, that's what was in the West. There was more outposts and this is what we got to do to pacify the Indians.
0: How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better?
1: Yeah, I think in my mind it helps because you get back into the primary sources. And again, for me, that's where I can get back and I can read and understand what were these people thinking back then? and, And why did they think certain things? Um, so, you can begin to understand that these two terms irregular means of war and petite guerre they were in use back then, but exactly what was meant by both and then you can kind of comprehend or begin to comprehend what they mean when they talk about warfare or they're talking about certain aspects of war, and they kind of piece that together of like okay, here's their mindset of why they use these words and. and what that actually means to them. I think in the end, it, it just boils down to the language used to describe the past. You know, you introduce the modern terms and it just brings, it can bring context that don't necessarily apply to the past. You know, some of the examples I already gave like guerrilla and unconventional warfare, both those terms, you can see them often applied to the American Revolution but they were not in use back then. And it really, in a broad sense, it it kind of explains what was going on back then, but it also brings a lot of baggage from 20th century, 21st century, back into that conflict that really doesn't need to be there. And that baggage can cause confusion and, and basically, at times, misrepresent the past. And I think that's how you get things twisted into the stereotypical thinking of, you know, again, we're still predominant to this day of, like I said, Americans won the revolution by hiding behind trees and, you know, the British stood out in the open. Uh, Warfare is never as simple as it seems. It's always complex and, again, you know, 250 years ago, it's just as complex as it is today.
0: Brian Gehring, Thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.